from the Wellington Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, this is Out of Place, a podcast collection of short stories where perceptions intersect with reality and the humor behind everyday events are revealed. I'm your host, Frank Schiffman, and the author of the story that follows, entitled Not a Plane in the Sky. If you're a baby boomer like me, there are events in our country that have left lasting impressions upon you. Every time you are reminded of one, you travel back in time to where you were when you first heard about it, what you were doing, and how you felt. At the top of my list is the Kennedy assassination. I was in third grade and remember when our teacher, Mrs. Mayer, told us about it and then sent us home. That afternoon, I hung out with my friends. We were all confused, trying to figure out what it all meant. The grown-ups around us were very upset. News coverage of the assassination played for hours on our black-and-white TV at home. Within days, names like Lee Harvey Oswald, Officer Tippett, and Jack Ruby became commonplace, topped off by the scene of John John's salute as his father's casket passed by him. On July 21, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. I was 14, and my dad, mom, and older brother gathered around our Zenith color TV to watch it. As luck would have it, the power went out. We all went outside to see if others were experiencing the same thing. They were, and you could hear the whole neighborhood shouting with frustration. Within a few minutes, the lights came back on and we rushed back into the house just in time to see Neil Armstrong plant the U.S. flag and deliver his now-famous lines, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. At that moment, I couldn't have been prouder to be an American. At 11.38 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, on January 28, 1986, the space shuttle Challenger launched from the Kennedy Space Center with seven crew members aboard. Its six-day mission was to deploy a communication satellite, retrieve astronomy equipment that had studied Halley's Comet, and provide Krista McAuliffe, the first teacher in space, with a platform to conduct lessons that would inspire elementary school children to pursue careers in science, technology, mathematics, and engineering. Seventy-three seconds later, at 46,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean, Challenger experienced a catastrophic explosion that would kill all of its passengers. I was a self-employed advertising consultant working out of Jim Prokel's studios in downtown Pittsburgh. A group of us gathered in a conference room to watch the rerun. There was a ton of positive hype around Challenger's mission. The possibility of something going wrong was the last thing anyone expected. I felt profound sadness. Our nation mourned together. As President Ronald Reagan delivered the following lines, The crew of the space shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for the journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. There are many other American events I could name. The assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy. 
the shooting of Allison Krauss by a National Guardsman at Kent State during a Vietnam War protest on campus. Steve Jobs, in his introduction of the Macintosh computer, immortalized in the 1984 Super Bowl hammer throw commercial. These are but just a few examples that have helped define my generation. However, one event stands alone for the profound and direct impact it had and continues to have on all of our lives. It has challenged our thinking. It has changed the way we travel. And it has served as a reminder that we ought not take for granted the freedoms we enjoy. This podcast, entitled Not a Plane in the Sky, is about that event and what happened to me. By the time you finish listening to it, I think you will agree that it is out of place. Part 1. But Naked I folded up the serving tray in front of me, put my laptop in its case, leaned back and closed my eyes. Thirty minutes later, I was wakened by a jostling motion as my plane's wheels connected with the concrete below them. Ladies and gentlemen, U.S. Air would like to be the first to welcome you to Las Vegas, where the local time is 10.40 p.m. and the temperature is 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened until this aircraft has come to a complete stop at the gate and the pilot has signaled that it is safe for you to stand. On behalf of Captain Monroe and this U.S. Air crew, we want to thank you for flying with us. Enjoy your stay in Las Vegas. Despite 14 years of flying, there was always something that prevented me from sleeping on a plane, and I came to accept it. Once a month, I flew from Pittsburgh to visit my customers on the West Coast. It became a well-honed routine. At 30,000 feet, I flipped up my laptop and began working. Bathroom breaks and meal service were the only things to break my concentration. Had I not jumped at the chance to move from an advertising career into sales, my world would have been much smaller. The combination of skills I brought to my sales job made me unique among my peers. Not only did I sell swimming pool chemicals, but I also helped my customers be better marketers of our products, resulting in significant increases in our sales to them. My success in both categories earned me the additional title of market development manager, which meant that I had a seat at the table whenever new product forms or packaging were being fleshed out. That was the case on this particular night as I landed in Las Vegas to attend the 2001 PAC Expo trade show to be held at the Sands Expo and Convention Center. Slumped and asleep in a window seat to my right was Rick Ferguson, technical manager of our business. There were two things you could count on when traveling with Rick. He could eat at the drop of a hat and sleep soundly on planes, no matter what turbulence might occur. Rick knew more about swimming pool general sanitizers and shock treatments than any other person in our business. He was a Carnegie Mellon engineer who had been directly involved in developing the manufacturing process for our plant. Rick stood a little over six feet tall, had a thin mustache, was lean as a beanpole, and dressed casually before it was the norm. He had a calm demeanor, and everyone in our business liked and trusted him. I stood five foot seven with a thick mustache and broad shoulders. 
I dressed in stylish business suits and sported a personality that was a cross between frenetic and comedic. Though on the outside we appeared different as day and night, we fiercely held to a common purpose, a drive toward quality in everything we did. Rick and I were also good friends who could disagree at the drop of a hat, but more often than not came together to push new product ideas and concepts through to commercialization. The project we were investigating on this trip involved identifying a package that would make it easier for a consumer to apply our granular chlorine to swimming pool water. The most popular package was a one-pound pouch made of a chlorine-resistant film. To apply it, a customer cut a corner of the pouch and sprinkled its contents around the perimeter of the pool. Since the pouch had no rigidity, it would flop around during application, making it awkward to control where the chlorine granules would go. Rick and I were exploring a simple concept we called the shock cup, which, as the name implied, was a cup similar to a yogurt container that made it infinitely easier to disperse chlorine across the water. The biggest hurdle we faced was that conventional plastics aren't chlorine-resistant. Chlorine breaks down plastic over time, making it brittle and prone to cracking, We conducted accelerated aging tests in our laboratory on a number of candidate containers, and all predicted failure within one year or less. Our goal was to find a reinforced plastic that would not only have a two-year shelf life, but also be economically feasible. Back then, the Internet was not yet the powerhouse solution to finding vendors. The next best alternative was to visit with plastics manufacturers or go to trade shows like Pack Expo. This was a big project to us and could involve purchasing millions of cups for use by consumers. Following Pack Expo, we were going to fly to Phoenix to visit with my largest customer, Leslie Swimming Pool Supplies, and conduct training on how to install a commercial chlorination system we had developed for them. Our plane rolled up to the airport gate, followed by the chiming of bells indicating it was safe to stand. Since we were in row 24, another 10 minutes passed before we reached the terminal. I didn't care much for McCarran International Airport because it was notoriously slow at getting suitcases to the baggage claim area. I was bushed as it was, and waiting 30 minutes for our bags to appear was excruciating. Following that, we hailed a cab. So where you guys headed? Caesar's Palace, please. We arrived at Caesar's Palace about 11.30 p.m. The massive and brightly illuminated driveway at Caesar's did its best to trick my eyes into thinking it was daylight, but my body would have none of it. Rick and I went through the revolving doors and headed straight for the front desk. To our surprise, we weren't the only ones checking in. Stanchions with wine-colored rope between them guided us to our place in line behind a dozen other guests. I stared at the giant painting of a chariot that was directly behind the desk before looking around the lobby itself. Beyond it was the main casino where the sound of slot machines filled the air. When it was our turn, Rick and I pulled out our reservations and handed them to the man behind the desk. He typed our information into the computer and then said, Mr. Schiffman, Mr. Ferguson, welcome to Caesar's Palace. We have your reservations, but the rooms are not quite ready. Please check back with us in about 45 minutes. Rick instantly read the expression on my face and decided this wasn't going to be a conversation he wanted to be a part of. 
He had traveled enough with me to know that rationality could quickly melt away whenever I was tired. Frank, I'll just wait over there. As Rick walked away, I looked back at the gentleman behind the counter, locking eyes, and said, You mean to tell me you don't have two rooms available anywhere in this gigantic hotel at 11.50 p.m.? That just doesn't sound right. I'm afraid so, Mr. Schiffman. With the Pack Expo in town, the hotel is completely booked. Look, Bob. I prefer Robert, if you don't mind. Okay, Robert. I don't mean to be difficult. But my colleague and I have been on a plane for five hours since leaving Pittsburgh. And that's exhausting enough. By the time another 45 minutes pass, it will be well after 3 o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, before we even get keys to the room. And that's just not acceptable. I understand that having folks waiting around might mean drinks at the bar or indulging in a little blackjack, but let me assure you, that's not going to happen here. So how about you check your computer again and find us two rooms, and we'll be on our way. Sorry, I looked everywhere, and we don't have any rooms available at this time. We will endeavor to cut your wait time, and are most happy to check your bags at no charge, but I'm afraid there's nothing else I can do. I believe you, Robert, when you say there's nothing else you can do. But I'm sure that the night manager can. So please be so kind as to ask him or her to step out here. Very well. Robert left his post and moved through a door directly behind him. Within a few seconds, the door opened slightly, and I could see Robert and another well-dressed man talking through the narrow divide before it closed again. Then he and his manager emerged. Good evening, Mr. Schiffman. My name is William Rodriguez. I'm the hotel's night manager. Robert here has informed me about your displeasure over our wait time. It is an extremely busy night as Pack Expo is in town. We understand your frustration entirely. Since we don't have rooms available at this time, I have authorized for you and Mr. Ferguson to stay the night in our presidential suite. Mr. Rodriguez, I really appreciate your help. However, we'll be staying for two nights with you. So if you could extend the suite for an additional night, we'll be done here. Mr. Schiffen, one night is all I can do. Tomorrow morning, your rooms will be ready, and all you need to do is come down to the front desk and pick up the keys. Look, Mr. Rodriguez, you might think that it's a big deal to stay at the presidential suite in Caesar's Palace. But to us, it's really not that big of a deal. We'll go to the suite, sleep and then we'll leave in the morning. It's just a bigger room. But what I hear you saying is, stay one night, and we'll inconvenience you in the morning and have you pack up and move once again. Let me assure you, Mr. Schiffman, that the presidential suite at Caesars is a big deal. Mr. Conrad Hilton himself stays in the suite whenever he visits. If it's acceptable enough for him, I think you'll find it more than accommodating for one night. All right, throw in two breakfasts, and we'll be on our way. At that point, Rodriguez should have asked me to take our business elsewhere, but instead he laughed and agreed to two breakfasts before telling Robert to check us in and fill out breakfast vouchers. With keys and vouchers in hand, I waved Rick over. Now what, Frank? Do we have rooms or not? Do we have rooms? Actually, we've got a suite, but only for the night. I tried like hell to keep the suite for two nights, but the manager wouldn't budge. So I had him throw in two breakfasts. 
Rick and I got onto an elevator set aside from all the others. I slipped our key into a special slot that lit up the 20th floor button. When the doors opened, we walked out into what felt like a cavernous hallway. Neither of us had ever seen anything like it. There were very few doors in either direction. We found the double-doored presidential suite, and I unlocked it. A moment later, we walked into the most opulent surroundings imaginable. The ceiling was at least 15 feet high, and the main room was filled with furniture and paintings fit for a king. Floor-to-ceiling windows lined the opposite wall. There was a full kitchen, bar, dining room, pool table, couches, and luxurious carpeting intermixed with hardwood floors. The bedrooms were located on each end of the living room. Both had a massive bathroom, hot tub, sitting area, and an elevated king bed adorned with a gold monogram duvet cover and ornate headboard. I looked over at Rick and said, I guess this will do. Even the normally reserved Rick had a smile on his face from ear to ear. We took a few minutes to review what time we would head down to breakfast in the morning before going over to the show at the Sands Convention Center. We decided on 7.30 and went to our rooms. I had completely lost track of time and now had an added boost of energy from our good fortune. I stood in my bedroom taking in all of its decadence before spying a remote control device sitting on a lamp table by the window. I walked over and picked it up. It had four buttons on it with arrows pointing in different directions. When I held down the up arrow, the lavalier blind over the window started to go up. Suddenly, I was standing above the beauty of Las Vegas at night, often described as the entertainment capital of the world. The buttons to the right and left opened and closed the blinds. I called the front desk and requested a wake-up call for 6.45 a.m. and got cleaned up. Just as I was about to get into bed, an idea crossed my mind. I stripped off my underwear and walked back over to the window butt-naked, picked up the remote, and pushed the up button once more. When the blind stopped at the top, I plastered myself against the glass in a pose similar to Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. Who cares, I thought. No one can see me, and even if they can, I'm in the presidential suite at Caesar's Palace. It was September 10th, 2001, and I was on top of the world. Part 2, September 11th, 2001. The sound of the telephone beside my bed rocked me out of a deep sleep. The room was dark, save for the streaks of light that crept through the small gaps at the edges of my windows. I reached for the remote that controlled the blinds. Seconds later, the room was filled with light. It was going to be a good day. No, it was going to be a great day. Next, I picked up the telephone and called Scott Pipitone, whose marketing and design firm had been handling our business for many years. His account team was working on a new package design for presentation to a major prospect, and I was anxious to hear how things were moving along. Scott picked up on the first ring. Scott, it's Frank here. Frank, where are you? 
I'm in Vegas, getting ready to attend a packaging show. Man, you should see the room I scored. It's out of this world posh. What, what time is it there, Frank? It's a little bit before seven. Guess you haven't heard about the World Trade Towers then, have you? Scott's statement left me in a quandary. Silence fell between us for a moment before I said, Okay, so what's the punchline? Punchline? What punchline? It's not a joke. Obviously you don't know, do you? Know what? Turn on your television. Two commercial jets crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City. I was watching the South Tower completely collapse on itself. Another plane crashed into the Pentagon, and a fourth plane crashed somewhere nearby here, like Shanksville or someplace near Somerset. Not much news about that, though. The media is calling these crashes terrorist attacks. Everyone's freaking out. Man, I'm glad you're not on a plane. You need to go get caught up on this, this stuff. I let most of my staff go home. Only a few of us are here right now. We're leaving shortly. Get home safely, man. Seconds later, my television screen came to life, showing the World Trade Center's South Tower implode and collapse to the ground, just as Scott had said. Reporters on channel after channel described the horrors that had taken place, along with speculations around what might lie ahead. If you're just joining us at 11.12 this morning on this September 11th, an amazing day. Uh, at 9 o'clock this morning, World Trade Center Tower number 1 uh, exploded because a plane crashed into it just before 9 o'clock this morning. Unbelievable then. Then 18 minutes later, another aircraft crashed into World Trade Center Tower. Oh, FAA. FAA is now confirming. Uh, so, the, so this uh, adds to those earlier rumors that there are several airplanes that are unaccounted for. So there were some rumors that, that there might have been other planes hijacked that we didn't yet know the outcome of it. And now the FAA is confirming that. There are several, was the word I heard, several planes that are unaccounted for. Um, Abdel Bariatwan, editor of the London-based Al-Qud al-Arabi newspaper, said Islamic fundamentalist led by bin Laden was almost certainly behind the attack of the World Trade Center in New York. The air of fear throughout the country was more than metaphorical. It was literal. Again and again and again, reruns of the two jets crashing into the World Trade Center towers were played followed by the collapse of the South Tower. These were augmented with sound bites from people who had witnessed the crashes from the ground. And, and, uh, but I did see the second plane. It came in very, very fast from the harbor, and it was going along the East River, and I thought, my God, it's going to brush the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm -hmm. And then it got just with, at the World Trade Center and turned, just the wing just bent, just, uh, how do you call that, dipped? Dipped, yeah. It just dipped and went right into the building. Reports surrounding the Pentagon being hit by a plane and the crash in Shanksville set the backdrop for what would be a very long day. There are many words I could use to describe how I felt that morning, but the one that rises to the top is frozen in place, wishing that events would just stand still so everyone could have the time they need to make sense of what was happening. Instead, I prayed. Then I called my wife. Like Scott, Adina answered on the first ring. Hi, I was just about to call you. Are you okay? Yes, I picked Sam up from preschool and I've been glued to the TV. Sam's upstairs playing with his train set. How are you and where are you? I'm fine. I'm, I'm sitting in my hotel room watching the news. God, it looks like Armageddon. No one knows what's happening at this point. They're tracking every plane in the sky. 
Word is that all aircraft is going to be grounded until further notice. But as much as I would like to talk about this, there are two things that you have to do right now. Okay, so first, call your mom. Let her know you're okay. I know she'll feel a hell of a lot better hearing your voice on the phone rather than hearing you're safe from me. Then, rent a car. That way, if worse comes to worse, you'll have a way home. Okay, those are, those are really good ideas. I'll call her right after we hang up. I talked to my mom, and then I rushed over to Rick's room and rapped loudly on his door. Opened it and walked in. Rick was sitting at a desk going over some paperwork. He looked over at me and instantly read the angst on my face. We're under attack! What? What? What are you, what are you talking about? Two planes crashed into the World Trade Center towers earlier this morning. One of them has collapsed. A third plane crashed into the Pentagon, and a fourth went down somewhere outside of Pittsburgh. It's like Pearl Harbor all over again. And the scariest part is no one knows who's behind the attacks or why. Turn on the TV. Rick snatched up his remote and pushed the on button. We stood staring at the screen just as the second, or North Tower, went down. Holy cow, you weren't exaggerating. We are under attack. I can't believe this. You better call Christine and let her know you're okay. I already talked to Adina. Yeah, sure. I better. She's probably freaking out. And let's get a rental, too, just in case we have to drive home. Adina said the same thing. I'll do that while you call home. When I called Avis, I was put on hold for about 15 minutes before an agent came on the line. Good morning, Avis Representative Ann Thomas. How may I help you? Yes, uh, this is Frank Schiffman with PPG Industries. Do you have any cars available for tomorrow that I can rent and drive to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Give me a moment to check. I could hear the sound of her keyboard as Ann searched her records. With each stroke, I became more anxious. Surely a ton of travelers are calling for cars, I thought. I just hope I'm not too late. We do have some, but because of the current situation, I can only offer you one of two of our smaller cars, a Chevrolet Cavalier or a Nissan Sentra. Well, I'll tell you what, Ann, I'm glad you have any. I'll take the Cavalier, please, but what happens when I get it to Pittsburgh? It won't be coming back. Don't worry about that. Given the circumstances, Avis is waiving all extra charges. One-way rentals are happening everywhere. Once I had the confirmation number, I returned to Rick's room. I wonder if they're even going to open the show today. Suppose we'll find out soon enough. Well, might as well grab breakfast. Then we can figure out what to do next. An eerie quiet enveloped us as we stepped off the elevator and walked toward the main lobby. I could hear the sound of a few slot machines, but the people we passed weren't talking. They were whispering. Whispering as though the very sound of their own voices would set off an alarm. We walked through the casino to the restaurant for which we had vouchers from the night before. Three television sets above the bar were turned to different stations. We sat at a table nearby. President Bush had addressed the nation about the attacks earlier in the morning, but it was the first time Rick and I listened to his remarks. Uh, today we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. I have spoken to the Vice President, to the Governor of New York, to the Director of the FBI, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation 
to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. We also learned that the White House and Capitol personnel had been evacuated and all U.S. airports were being shut down. There was an ongoing scramble to identify remaining aircraft in the U.S. skies, as well as those coming in from countries outside of the U.S. Las Vegas and Los Angeles were on high alert. It was now 8.15 a.m. West Coast time. Rick slipped away from the table to see if Pack Expo would be open. Once again, I felt frozen in place, wondering what to do next. Get cash, and plenty of it, I thought. If credit card processing goes down, we'll be screwed. Just as soon as Rick returned and told me that the show would be open, I left a tip, and we went into the casino looking for the nearest cash machine. Back then, the maximum amount you could take out at one time was $100, with a maximum of 300 per day. So I stood in front of the machine, taking out my bank card and reinserting it until I hit the maximum. I planned to return the next morning and get another $300. We went to the front desk to explain that we would be going to the show and asked if our rooms were ready. The check-in person told us that we could keep the room until 4 p.m. They would call us when it was time to move. With that settled, we decided to go back up to the suite for an hour to shower, change, and continue monitoring the news. Then we'd walk over to the convention hall, which was a little over a mile away. The streets were filled with people as we made our way to the show. Once again, everyone was whispering. I can't say for sure, but we probably were too. I kept asking myself why we were even bothering to go. We weren't exactly in the right frame of mind to discuss business, and who knew if the vendors would be any better? Yet, what else was there to do? Sitting in our suite watching news all day would only serve to heighten our fears and anxieties. If for only a few hours, Rick and I could go to Pack Expo and try to accomplish something other than fall prey to events over which we had no control. It was quiet and eerie and unsettling inside the convention center as well, despite having several thousand attendees moving through the aisles. People had come to Pack Expo from all over the country and outside of the U.S. in search of products and services unique to their businesses. However, on this day, all were kindred spirits, looking for answers to two questions that could not be found on this or any other show floor. Why did this happen? And who was responsible for it? Rick opened the trade show booklet and began mapping out a route to the vendors with whom we wanted to visit. Aside from potential suppliers for our Shock Cup project, we had planned to spend time investigating pale suppliers, label options, film for pouching, and tolling operators. We also were on the hunt for packaging innovations and configurations that could help us more efficiently cut costs. At every third or fourth booth, small groups of people stood around a rental TV set atop display shelves that otherwise would have been used to showcase products. Each time videos of the towers collapsing, smoke billowing from the west side of the Pentagon, and plumes of smoke rising in the air from the crash site in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, crossed the screen, the heads of those watching moved from side to side. For the next two hours, we walked the floor and gathered information. 
The same scenario played out each time we stopped. Everyone with whom we talked speculated on what was happening to our country, who might be behind the attacks, and how we should respond. Once we find out what sons of bitches did this, we should bomb the shit out of them. I can tell you this. It's probably some Middle Eastern terror group like Al-Qaeda. Those moles are always calling for jihad against America. I have no idea why anyone would want to do something like this. The U.S. is the leader of the free world, aren't we? At noon, Rick and I grabbed burgers and walked over to a nearby booth in which a large crowd had gathered to watch a special bulletin. The scenes of destruction to which we had become most accustomed to watching were replaced with something I simply could never have imagined. Palestinians were in the streets of East Jerusalem burning American flags and throwing candy and celebrating the destruction of the World Trade Centers. These are Palestinian celebrations in the wake of Tuesday's terror attacks in the United States. Apparently, Palestinians took to the street chanting, God is great. People were throwing candy, distributing candy to passers-by. We finished visiting with vendors at about 2 p.m. and walked back to Caesars. A dinner was scheduled with one potential shock cup supplier at a restaurant near our hotel. The break in between would give us time to rest and move from the presidential suite to new rooms. Despite all that was going on that afternoon, we spread out brochures and notes on the dining room table and attempted to go over what we had learned at the show. Within 20 minutes, we were in the living room, plopped down on two couches, watching the latest news. Our planned day of promise had turned rapidly into one of worry and uncertainty. We made calls to our family and close friends. Then Rick received a call from our general manager who informed him that PPG had set up a special corporate hotline to track all employees like us who were caught away from home. We were to check in daily with them and provide information on how we were feeling and our plans for getting home. The team would handle all hotel arrangements we might require. The suite phone rang at 4 p.m. Our rooms were ready. I took one final look around, knowing that staying in such opulent surroundings again wasn't likely in my future. With bags in hand, Rick and I walked out of the presidential suite. Our stay here would soon become a memory, forever linked to a catastrophic event in American history. That evening, we crossed a footbridge connecting Caesar's Palace with Bellagio for dinner with a plastic container manufacturer we met at the show. The bridge was packed with people, which slowed the pace to get across it. Everyone moved in semi-silence, as if respecting the solemnity of the day. Next to me was an American Airlines pilot who looked as though he was about to cry. I said to him that it must be a really tough day for you. He told me that he knew one of the pilots on the plane that flew into the Pentagon. What were the odds? But then again, they say there are only six degrees of separation between people. All day long, we had been watching pictures of the plane crashes in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. But there was something surreal about them. This pilot's statement took the crashes off the screen and put the victims front and center. There were four of us at dinner, and for an hour and a half we talked about the day's events and explored a few options to develop a shock cup. Having been immersed in bad news all day long, 
the product development discussion served as a temporary distraction from our own consternations. Then an angel appeared in the form of a beautiful bride, all in white, who walked past our table and into a private dining room. All eyes in the restaurant suddenly were upon her. She was simply breathtaking. Her presence was a stark reminder to me that no matter what, life must go on. Part 3. Road Warriors News concerning when the airlines would be operational kept changing throughout the evening. By the time we were ready to turn in, it was clear that all flights would remain grounded for some time. Driving home was no longer an option. It was a necessity. I called my customer at Leslie's and told him that we wouldn't be able to come to Phoenix for obvious reasons. He asked if we might be able to stop and flag staff and train some of his folks along the way home. It seemed doable, so I agreed. Rick outlined a route that would take us from Las Vegas to Flagstaff and then on to Amarillo, Texas, where we would spend the night. Total drive time was just shy of 13 hours to Amarillo. It was a very ambitious goal, but with two drivers, we felt we could do it. All that remained was to call headquarters and inform them of our plans. We hailed a cab to the Avis pickup location and got there at 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. There wasn't a large crowd, and we were able to quickly get our car. Two miles down the road, we discovered that the air conditioning wasn't working. I was getting frustrated, while Rick was his usual calm self. Oh boy, just our luck. We have everything all set, and now this. I doubt they'll have another rental car to give us. I can't imagine driving all the way across the country without air. Before you freak out, let me take a look. It could be something as simple as a fuse. I pulled the car over and got out. Rick crawled under the dash, and in less than two minutes, he was done. He turned the car on, and the air was working. So what'd you do, I said. I swapped the rear window defogger fuse for the air conditioning fuse. We certainly won't be needing to defrost windows. Now, let's get going. The route we planned would give us an opportunity to stop and see the Hoover Dam. Neither of us had ever seen it before. But when we got close, the main road was closed. We suspected because the authorities viewed the Hoover Dam as a potential terrorist target. That meant we had to detour around it, adding close to another hour of drive time. When we were 30 miles outside of Flagstaff, I called the Leslie's branch to let them know we would be there soon. The manager told me they wouldn't be able to gather everyone that day and requested that we stay overnight. At that point, Rick had had enough. He wasn't crazy about doing the training to begin with and felt that I was going beyond the call of duty. Frank, if you want to stay overnight, I will drop you off. But I am going to head to Amarillo tonight. So it's your choice. I canceled the training and promised to fax the information we were planning to present to my customer, and we continued on our way. The only hint of disagreement from that point forward was when Rick wanted to listen to a Christian station while I preferred Howard Stern. We compromised on Dr. Laura. Otherwise, we tuned into the news and listened to music. The skies were cloudless and bright blue, while the roads were flat and monotonous. Neither of us realized how conscious we were to seeing planes in the sky. Now that none were there, we found ourselves looking for them. Whenever we stopped for gas or food, 
everyone we encountered were especially friendly and courteous. The realization that we were all in this nightmare together was apparent in a nod, a smile, or a wave. The whispered conversations that we had observed in Las Vegas continued. Just before dusk, we were treated to a beautifully lit red sky and experienced purple's majesty in the New Mexican mountain ranges around us, whose endless contours challenged the imagination. The entire area was illuminated by a vivid palette of southwest colors, from teal, blue, and burnt orange to tans and greens. It felt as though we were driving through a painting. At 11.30 p.m. local time, we arrived at our hotel. On Thursday, our route took us through Oklahoma City, where we stopped at an office depot to fax the training presentation to my customer. We decided to drive to the site where the John Murrah Federal Building was bombed by domestic terrorists just six years prior. Then we were off to Indianapolis, Indiana, where we would spend the night. Outside the Indianapolis airport that evening, we saw airplanes in the sky. However, instead of passenger planes, there were a line of UPS aircraft stretching as far as the eye could see. We watched in awe as one flight after another touched down. They signified to us that commerce was starting up once again. Friday marked the last leg of the drive. We had eaten Arby's roast beef sandwiches for lunch every day, but I told Rick that we had to go through Columbus, Ohio, and stop at Katzinger's, my favorite Jewish deli. Three hours later, we completed our three-day journey covering 2,200 miles and were home in Pittsburgh. That Saturday, my wife and I celebrated our sixth wedding anniversary, one we would never forget. Epilogue. As the weeks and months went by following 9-11, a bevy of information came to light. Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for the attacks and became enemy number one throughout the U.S. And who can forget Mohammed Atta, the ringleader behind the plane hijackings? His face appeared so many times across the media that most of us could identify him in a lineup even today. American flags were everywhere, and I remember everyone in my company wearing a flag pin on their lapel. Our country was far from divided. My wife and I took our kids to New York in the summer of 2010. Sam was 14 and Marlo 9. A visit to the rebuilding site of the World Trade Centers, the Memorial Fountains, and the 9-11 Museum were part of our plans. I was struck by how massive the area was where the former towers once stood. They and surrounding buildings occupy 16 acres. Seeing the memorial fountain designed by architect Michael Arad and landscape architect Peter Walker for the first time, I was moved by its simplicity and captivating beauty. From there, we visited the Memorial Museum. It was still under construction, but nevertheless provided a vivid look into the horrors that were 9-11, shown in pictures, bent iron bars, deformed fire helmets, and unclaimed personal items found among the devastation. Though our son Sam could not directly recall that day, he knew very well what 9-11 was all about. Adina and I took for granted that Marlowe did as well. She hadn't said anything, and we were almost outside of the museum 
when she turned to Adina and said, "Mom, what's this all about?" Thank you for listening to this out of place podcast entitled "Not a Plane in the Sky," which is based on a true story from my experience in sales and development, working for PPG Industries, a Fortune 500 company headquartered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Many of the names of individuals included in this presentation are fictional, but reflect real events. If you enjoyed "Not a Plane in the Sky," please give it a five-star review. Follow us and share Out of Place Short Stories podcast with friends. Out of Place Short Stories are available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Not a Plane in the Sky was written and produced by me, Frank Schiffman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All rights reserved. Copyright 2023. Special thanks to the following individuals. Who voiced characters for this episode? John Beggy, who played Robert, the check-in clerk at Caesar's Palace; Victor Dubbs, Paula Giglio, and Ethan Russman, who all played trade show vendors; Rick Ferguson, my traveling companion, who played himself; Pedro Mays, who played Robert Rodriguez, the night manager who provided Rick and me with a presidential suite at Caesar's Palace for one night; Scott Pipitone. Who played himself, and was the first person to tell me about the 9/11 attacks? Adina Schiffman, my wife, who played herself; Marlo Schiffman, my daughter, who played the part of Ann Thomas, the Avis car rental representative; Christine Waller Mays, who played the role of a U.S. Air flight attendant; and Violet Regan, who played Marlo at nine years old. Music score for opening and closing by Joshua Empire.